This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. Today, we're happy to have as our guest Gustavo Ariano, a columnist for the Los Angeles Times and host of the Times podcast, and also a prolific presence on Twitter. He's here with Commonweal's Director of Mission and Partnerships, Claudia Avila Cosnahan, to talk about, well, a lot of things, from satire and food to religion and local politics and corruption in the Catholic Church. Their conversation is coming right up on the Commonweal Podcast. Hi, Claudia. It's really good to see you today. Hi, Dominic. Likewise. I'm really excited about today's guest because it's somebody we've really been eager to have on the Commonweal podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? Yes, Gustavo Dian is a big personality in Los Angeles and Orange County. In his early career as a writer and later as an editor for the OC Weekly, an alternative publication in Orange County, California, he became known for his satirical take on racism directed at Mexicans. He's a writer who takes seriously the old maxims, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comforted. I was excited to talk to Gustavo because he writes with conviction, especially on matters of local politics and corruption of any kind, including the church's sexual abuse scandal. When you follow his career, you discover that he has great love for the community. And while he might cover some difficult topics, he manages to maintain a sense of joy and gratitude. He's a prominent voice in Los Angeles, and I'm always interested in what he has to say. Thanks, Claudia. And I'm really eager to hear this uh, conversation between you. Thank you. So, Gustavo, it's such a pleasure to talk to you. And you just celebrated your birthday recently. And I had the pleasure to go to this (laughs) awesome event that you put together. So you hosted a fundraising event in support of the Frida Cinema, which is the only art house cinema in Santana, California. And people gathered for a double feature. And the first feature film was a short documentary in which you're the subject titled Con Su Pluma en Su Mano, Ballad of Gustavo Arellana, Arellano. And it was directed by Brendan uh, Bubion. But what's interesting to me is that you chose the second film that was going to be screened and you chose the 1974 Mel Brooks film, Blazing Saddles. Yeah. So I'd like to start with that. I want to know why you chose Blazing Saddles. Because it's the funniest film of all time. I mean, that, there, there's no other answer around that. I want something that's going to make people laugh. And I'm a huge, huge film nerd, at least classic Hollywood. And so Blazing Saddles, I think it's hilarious. I think it's a parody of so many things in Hollywood. I'm not one of those people like, oh, I'm going to screen it because it says words that you're not supposed to say anymore. You're not allowed to say this movie. No, it's funny. And I that said, though, I also want to challenge people. It's like, I don't believe in exiling words and never saying words. Words have a lot of power. And I think... By battlerizing them, we really treat people as infants and not being able to realize why sometimes people use those words. So in this case, in in Blazing Saddles, yes, you have the N-word. You have insults against Chinese, against Mexicans, against Irish, against Methodists of all people. Not Catholics, actually. But I wanted people to think, why is Mel Brooks doing this? What is he trying to do? Why is Mel Brooks and Richard Pryor trying to do this? And look, I was there in the audience. You were there in the audience. People were laughing. People were groaning, but people were mostly laughing. They got it. They absolutely got it. And at the end, they realized like, wow, this is a punch to the old Hollywood system. This eradicates the Western, which, I mean, right now we live in the era of Yellowstone. Oh, everything like the Western, we're losing our ways. Mel Brooks showed that, no, the West, the Wild West that we mythologized, it was filled with a bunch of racists and idiots as well. 
Yeah. As I was sitting there watching Blazing Saddles with the rest of the audience, I couldn't help but think about what you did with Ask a Mexican and the OC Weekly. I was sitting there and I thought, this is a perfect combination. We just (laughs) saw this short 10 minute documentary about you and obviously a large portion of what the documentary covers is you being an editor at the OC and losing it afterwards. But I wondered, is this the kind of film and the kind of humor that was important to you growing up? The sense of a satire around the things that are actually hurtful to us, right? Absolutely. Um, I grew up with Mad Magazine. Only the old people know what Mad Magazine is, but basically set American humor on the path that we were in for a long time, this idea of irony and satire. And more importantly, and it's interesting because seeing Mad Magazine and also growing up with the Warner Brother cartoons, Tom and Jerry, especially Tex Avery, Disney films, the Warner Brother cartoons I especially like because they were always ridiculing power. They were always ridiculing the high and mighty. I thought that was funny. And look, I'm the child of Mexican immigrants, a working class. My mom was a tomato counter. My dad was a truck driver. They didn't teach me like, oh, you have to hate all people with money. No, they didn't teach me that at all. They just taught me like work and and just continue to work really. But seeing those films, it taught me like people in positions of power, they're calm. People with a lot of money, they're especially dumb. And Mad Magazine accentuated all of that. So by the t- that was always the type of humor that I gravitated to. So by the time I became a reporter, just straight up reporter for the OC Weekly, which was an alternative newspaper, and we were all about this idea of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. And Ask a Mexican was a column that I wrote that took people's questions about Mexicans and I answered them no matter how ridiculous or racist they were. But it was always about ridiculing presumptions questioning nonstop. That's people sometimes call me a contrarian, which I find silly. A contrarian to me is someone who they put themselves in a position just so they could be against anyone else. I'm like, no, I'm just always going to state the truth, whether it inconveniences you or whether it inconveniences me. You know, that the idea of comforting the afflicted and afflicting the comforted, that's a very Catholic concept. Oh, yeah. I think. Well, I want to I want to take a, a few steps back. You mentioned your parents. Right now you cover in your bio, you say you cover all things Southern California, everything and a bunch of the West and beyond. But to me, it seems and I think it's very obvious to the people who meet you that Santana, California is where your heart is. Um, (laughs) No, it's Anaheim. Well, same difference. Don't start with that. (laughs) You know, but what is it? What was your experience? Like, what was your parents' actual experience in these places? Because I think that we always throw around these names like Anaheim, Orange County, Santana, whatever it is, right? I know that when I tell people where I came from, which is Fontana, people like groan, right? Fontana, California. But Fontucky. They can't, exactly. They carry a lot of baggage. And so people don't really know what it's like to grow up in these spaces in Southern California because everybody thinks that Los Angeles is Southern California. So what was it like for you being born and raised not in Los Angeles, but in in Orange County? What in your experience affected the kind of voice that you have now? It really, como se dice, it's really all incumbent on one specific incident in my life. I'll talk up to it. So as I said earlier, I'm the child of Mexican immigrants. My mom and her mistias y tios, they came to Anaheim the, in the mid-1960s when there was very few Mexican immigrants. There was Chicanos, yes, but very few Mexican immigrants. So, so they got harassed and beat mercilessly 
because they were Mexicans. And even though I didn't mind that their skins were whiter than white people. So they grew up with a lot of that trauma. My dad, on the other hand, he came to this country in the trunk of a Chevy in 1968. And so, and they were both part of a diaspora of a huge diaspora of people from Jerez Zacatecas. And so that was the diaspora that I grew up in. Like every weekend, I knew other Mexicans, but my life was centered around this diaspora. Quinceañeras, bodas, bautizos, just parties, just visiting people. And a lot of that diaspora had settled in Anaheim specifically. There's at least over a thousand people from Jerez and specifically from my mom's small rancho village of El Cargadero, at least a thousand people in Anaheim. So that's what I grew up with. But the problem with me growing up with that is a lot of these people, good, hardworking people, blue collar people, I grew up as a nerd. So I grew up as an outsider within my own community. Like we'd have these dances. Once you become a teenager, you're expected to dance. No girl wanted to dance with me. So of course you get that rejection really just sticks with you. Like I could literally remember the two women, because you'll go up to a woman or a girl, whatever that you don't know, a stranger. Hey, do you want to dance? And mo almost always they'd say, yes, my cousins never got rejected. I always got rejected. Only two times would I was did someone ever say, yes, I'll dance with you. And so it was it was humiliating. Then you go to school. So I always tell people like my experiences of her or whatever you want to call it in Orange County wasn't centered on the fact that I was a Mexican and my oppressors were white people the way they were with my parents. Really, the oppressors were everyone. And really, it was Mexicans who were oppressing me for being a potro, for not being Mexican enough. But whatever. I, I, I moved through. Went through high school, wasn't the best high school student, but I really just wanted to leave the expectations of my rancho, of being part of this diaspora. I wanted to move to a wealthier area. Look, I was proud of being Mexican, but I just wasn't Mexican enough for my crew or for my diaspora. But that all changed in 1999 when I would have been 20 years old and a school board trustee from where I graduated, the Anaheim Union High School District. He decided that he was going to announce that he wanted to sue Mexico for $50 million for educating the children of illegal immigrants. And that just infuriated me because I graduated from Anaheim High. I saw how crappy Anaheim High was. I remember going to the counselor and saying, like, I don't know anything about college, but I know I have to go to it if I want to do something, if I want to be successful in this country. So how do I go to it? And the counselor, older white woman, said, like, oh, you shouldn't go to college. You should get a trade job like auto mechanic and nothing against those jobs, but I knew that wasn't me. And for me, I'm like, why are you limiting me from going to college? And so I got so infuriated by that school trustee that I went to the board meeting where they're going to vote on it by, I really think it's divine providence. I was the first person to speak and I wrote my speech. I said my speech and my entire life changed. I got involved into activism, eventually got into journalism. But this is why I always laugh when people say from L.A., like, oh, you don't know anything about struggles. You're from Orange County. People assume Orange County is rich and white and all the Mexicans are just sellouts. But no, that is not Orange County, not even close. And the fact that people, anyone who believes that, that shows the liberal bubble that they live in. And they also that also shows that they don't want to get out of that bubble. So I think that's why I imagine maybe you can expand a little bit more on this, but this is probably why you chose satire when you wrote <laughs> Ask a Mexican. Was it because, well, tell me why, why was it that you chose satire? Because what, again, going back to what I said earlier, just ridiculing power, that's really one of the few weapons that the oppressed, the poor have, because 
the powers that be, they're going to have bigger guns than you. They're going to have better defenses than you. They're always going to have more money than you. They could always rally an army around you. And they think they're so omnipotent. And what they can't stand is when you make fun of them. I will always maintain that. You have seen that throughout history. When you have true despots, the first people they start going after are political cartoonists and essayists because they're the ones who dare call out the emperor for having no clothes. I started Ask a Mexican specifically because when I joined OC Weekly, Ask a Mexican started in 2004. I joined OC Weekly on a freelance basis in November of 2000. So I covered immigration, especially in Orange County, because Orange County is a hotbed for so much xenophobia. And when you cover something, you try to do every angle possible. You do So I did serious stuff. I did funny stuff. I did oral histories. I did a little bit of everything. And anytime I would do something, people would just flip out. Ah, like all this fighting. You just say the word Mexican. It's like dropping a grenade somewhere. People start, except people start running towards it instead of running against it. And so my editor at the time, he was the one who actually thought of the idea of Ask a Mexican. It's because he asked me a question. I told him it was stupid for him to ask it. This idea of why do Mexicans call white people gringos? It was, to me, it was just such a dumb question. I didn't, I wasn't offended. I just thought it was dumb. And he said to his credit, well, there's other people who have questions about Mexicans. Some are dumb, some are smart. So why don't we ridicule this idea that people have questions about Mexicans? So we did the column. We started in 2004 and we decided that we would end it. It was supposed to be a joke column, a one-time only column. We decided to end it when there was no more questions to be answered. Well, when I resigned from OC Weekly in October of 2017, 13 years later, I think the reason people liked Ask a Mexican, and look, a lot of people hated it as well, well-meaning people and idiot and racist, but I think why it got the infamy that it did was because very few people were just going to be so clear-eyed about this and so uh, sharp-tongued about racism, and not just racism against Mexicans. Mexicans, we could be as racist as anyone, so I'd call that stuff out as well. Were you sad to have lost that space you had in Orange County? No. Yes and no. I OC Weekly, because I eventually became the editor, it was my dream job. I fell into journalism by accident. Once I decided I wanted to be a reporter, I wanted to re be reporting on Orange County because I thought Orange County, there were so many great stories that were not told by the daily newspapers or the media, and we were able to tell those stories. So, And it was also where I was born and raised, and all my family is, so why would I have ever wanted to leave that? But I had to leave that because my editor wanted me, or the owner of OC Weekly wanted me to lay off half the staff, and I refused. But I was always telling other stories. I mean, it's so interesting to see how people, if people know me at all, how they know me. Nationally, most people know me for anything with Mexican food, taco, because I wrote a book, Taco USA. A lot of people only knew me as a columnist for Ask a Mexican. In Orange County, I was known as the editor of OC Weekly and someone who told all these crazy stories about Orange County. But in the South, people know me for covering Mexican food in the South for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And then once I became a freelancer, God, I just started telling all sorts of different stories. I'm always studying about the world. Now at the Los Angeles Times, yes, my responsibility is to tell the stories of Southern California from Ventura County over to the Imperial Valley down to San Diego and even into Bakersfield. But especially now, they really want me to focus on L.A. city politics in the wake of the racist tape scandal that came out of City Hall. But look, I don't go for nostalgia. If your best days aren't ahead of you, then you have a very sad life. 
I, I don't believe that you're perceived as having a sad life. I think that enough years have passed by that now people are seeing you first and foremost as the colonist at the Los Angeles Times. In fact, I think that one of the most, at least what I have found to be exciting in your writing is the way you look back to the sociopolitical history of California, because it's such a forgotten thing. I think that many times California is spoken about as its present moment, yeah, as if that's the only experience it's ever had. But you do such a wonderful job in bringing us back to looking at what has been. What do you believe happens when we remember California's history? Because you do that so often. We have to remember our history. The old cliche, those who forget the past are condemned to repeat it. What I always tell my students or when I was editor, the interns and my reporters, know your history, know your history. That just makes you a better person. That makes you more informed. That also teaches you that like Ecclesiastes says, there is nothing new under the sun. So what are you going to do about it? And I do love history stories. Part of it is to better inform the public, but also because a lot of the stories that I tell aren't really well known. I did a story about people are talking about, especially now with California. Oh, we're so dumb to dump all this water into the Pacific. Anytime it rains, we shouldn't have put up dams. We shouldn't have made our rivers into concrete gulches. There's a reason why it wasn't because we were uh, we we were trying to tame the West just so we could tame the West for the sake of it. It's because in 1938, there was the worst of uh, the deadliest floods in Southern California history where over 100 people died. At least half of them, if not more, were Mexican-Americans and Mexican immigrants. So when we had these huge rainfalls this past January – I decided I was going to tell that story and visit the monuments. I'm always fascinated by monuments because we so often ignore them, but they tell you something. And woe to the people who ignore what those monuments are trying you are trying to tell you. I always joke that I'm a prophet, but I say that in the sense where I really try to align myself with biblical prophets in terms of telling the people, this is how we are. This is what you're doing wrong. And this is what's going to befall you if you do not right your wrongs. And I leave it to you folks to try to correct that because that's not my job. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you offer any solutions to all, the, all these problems that you call? I'm like, that's not my job. If, if I wanted to offer solutions, I'd become a politician. I'm not going to become a politician. But I do have an uncanny ability to be able to diagnose what's wrong with certain things or the hypocrisies or call people out for who they are. And so that's my talent. That's a talent that God gave me. We'll have more of Claudia's conversation with Gustavo Ariano in a moment. I'm Ellen Koenig, Executive Director of Commonweal. With our centennial just around the corner in 2024, now is a great time to consider making a one-time donation or joining our associates program. Thank you very much for your support. It helps make everything we do at Commonweal, our publications, our programming, and this podcast possible. You speak a lot about your faith. How does your faith affect your daily experience of your career? I I cross myself. I make the sign of the cross every day. I pray. (laughs) It's everything. I always used to say what makes me fundamentally or my biggest influences were the Beatles, the Simpsons, Howard Stern, and Catholicism. So I we used to go to church all the time. 
St. Boniface in Anaheim. I have very fond memories of Doctrina. So it was, I don't, what, what Sunday yeah, school? I don't even know how to say it in English. That's what, that's the type of Catholic I am. It's always funny going to English language mass because I do not know the prayers at all. It's all in Spanish. That's how, that's where I would always go to mass. But just, you know, fond memories of communion, confirmation, reconciliación, all those classes and just all the morality that we learned there. And I, what I learned from the teachers was that you should always be trying to help out those less fortunate than you. I didn't learn no prosperity gospel. I didn't learn no gospel of being as rich as possible. I learned help other people live a good life, try to live as good a life as possible and be opposed to evil in this world. That's why it was so bitter for me once I became a reporter to have to cover the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal in Orange County, California. It's I and people always say, well, you're anti-Catholic. I'm like, no, I'll always consider myself Catholic. I'm opposed to the men who run the earthly version of Catholicism within the Catholic Church. But I still that does not lessen my faith in God. That does not lessen my faith in the saints and all of that stuff. Never will. Never will. At work, I have all these different saint cards, prayer cards, and some and people always say, oh, you're doing it ironically. I'm like, no, and that's insulting for mm. you to think I'm doing this for irony. Every saint, you pray to the saints for their intercession in various matters, or at least to talk to God. And yeah, I always try to be a good person, always. Am I always going to be a good person? No. I'm sure a lot of people will say I'm a horrible person the way I write about certain things or whatnot, but whatever, I, I get to deal with that with God. You've covered so much. It's like everything from film, food, there's humor in your writing, there's seriousness in your writing. I always imagined you like pointing at things. It's like you're always directing <laughs> us. That's why I really appreciate your image of the prophet because the prophet does point us. It, it directs our attention to what perhaps we've been missing. And all of these things require us to look at difficult things, like you said, yeah. but what has been your greatest joy covering Southern California? All of it? I don't know. You're only as good as your last story. But look, the thing I'm proudest of is my coverage of the Catholic Church sex abuse scandal. And not just because it deserved its attention, but who else made it funny? I mocked uh, former Orange Bishop Todd D. Brown so much. This is the 2000s, so anytime I would do a story about him, I would always end it with heck of a job, Brownie, which, of course, that's what George W. Bush said during Katrina. And the survivors of the abuse, they were just so kind with their words, and they loved my coverage because now in these more woke times, they're like, well, how could you possibly find any humor in the abuse of children? Well, I found it. And again, it wasn't about the abuse. It was about the bishops and priests and everyone who was covering up for that abuse. That, those are the people you need to ridicule. And I know for a fact the Diocese of Orange was not happy with my coverage at all. So I'm proudest of that at the end. But also just, I mean, teaching Southern California about itself, the histories, the hidden histories. I love doing those stories, honestly. But on a very immediate level, being a food critic was always the most rewarding, not just because the food was good. But I remember I would do these reviews and I had enough of a following to where these restaurants would be flooded with people 
in the media afterwards. And I'd get these phone calls. And of course, I never announced myself as a food critic. I do believe in anonymity. So, and I mostly interviewed or went to smaller restaurants, not the higher restaurants. They wouldn't know who I am, but I would go to an Orange County, a lot of Vietnamese restaurants, a lot of Persian restaurants, Mexican restaurants, of course, Chinese restaurants. They don't know who I am. And I, I never took any offense, but doing these reviews after the fact, they would see my byline and they would call me with tears or crying because of you, because of your coverage, our restaurant is now busy. Our restaurant is now successful. I've been able to see restaurants that I covered when no one else was covering them. The I've gotten to know the owners and they are living a good life. Not maybe not a prosperous life, but a good life. And I know a lot of this sounds like bragging, but it's like there are certain restaurateurs in Southern California that I can do no wrong by them because they remember that I was there before anyone else was. And it's always great to hear that stuff. You don't do it as a reporter. You don't even do it so people hate you. You do it so people can pay attention. And that's what I always try to do. I want people to read me. I want people to pay attention to what I'm saying. You don't have to agree with me. You don't. If you agree with me all the time, there's a problem, frankly. But pay attention. And if you're not paying attention, like Agustin Lara sang in Imposible, y tu castigo se lo dejo a Dios. So, Gustavo, what are some of the things that you're paying attention to right now? What are some places or people that you want your readers to look at? Just questioning this idea that once we got representation, us Latinos specifically, once we got Latino political representation, things would be okay. I always had a problem with that assumption, especially covering Orange County, where we had a lot of prominent Latino politicians who were also very bad politicians. Some were corrupt, some were just uh, unethical. And I think the racist tape leak scandal at LA City Hall put that in, into focus. In fact, my year-end column for the LA Times was the year when Latino politicians became the ultimate villain. We really do have to elect people. I know it's a cliche, but we cannot just see who they are ethnically or religiously. We have to consider them for what their actions are going to be and who are they representing. The big thing I always try to do is try to get people to consider the other side. We, and I am not one of these people who say, oh, we live in the worst times. We live in the most socially stratified times of, or even politically stratified time times. Again, there's nothing new under the sun. When I was at OC Weekly, Everyone hated us. The Democrats hated us more than Republicans because we'd always trust the Democrats. So I'm used to just what como se dice, just venom all across the board. But and so I just try to get people like consider why the other side thinks this way. Because not only on a humanistic level, but if you're playing the game, you should know how your enemy thinks. Because if you don't know how your enemy thinks or you can't consider what's motivating your enemy, they're gonna win. I did a column about you know, the the embattled L.A. council member, Kevin DeLeon, who was part of this racist tape leak. At the time, you had all these protesters just being really in his face and led to this infamous incident where a protester was screaming or yelling at Kevin DeLeon right in his face. Kevin DeLeon claims he headbutted him, which is a complete lie. You see the video. But what Kevin did is then just threw the activist down into the ground. It was just it was just embarrassing all around, but especially on Kevin because he should know better as a politician. But what I said for activists was like, Watch what you're doing because you're playing into Kevin's game. Kevin wants to be seen as a martyr. Kevin wants to be seen as persecuted. That's how he's going to be able to maintain power. And I got such blowback for it. Oh, my God. People were just 
angry at me. Some former fans of mine just angry at me that I would say that, but I'm like, don't throw your rancor at me. Pay attention to the game. Because of that, people started saying I was a supporter of Kevin DeLeon, even though I said he should be recalled. And what ended up happening, like currently as we speak right now, Kevin DeLeon is showing up to city council meetings as if nothing has happened. Activists are just flummoxed at what to do next. So I literally called it. Kevin DeLeon is winning and Kevin DeLeon is crying all the way to maintaining his seat. So you have to pay attention to what the other side's doing. Like that just makes you a smarter person. So at least that's at the end, that's what I always try to do is pay attention. That's what I always try to do. Pay attention, folks, pay attention. Don't care about me. Literally don't pay attention to the messenger, pay attention to the message. And besides politics in Southern California, what would you want us to pay attention to now in the church? So what I'm paying attention to is especially how the right is ascendant in the Catholic Church, especially in the United States. We've seen this in Los Angeles with Archbishop Gomez. I wrote about that as well. You want to talk about hypocrisy. The My, my version of Catholicism is the Catholic worker. I have been, I've known the Catholic worker in Orange County, Dwight and Leah Smith, Isaiah House for, geez, 20 years. They are friends of mine. I think they are truly secular saints. I think anyone who's involved with the Catholic worker, they have a commitment to the faith far greater than I could ever hope to imagine. The most I could do for them, I'll volunteer sometimes, but really my best way is by writing about them. And so when Archbishop Gomez talked about going off against woke culture in 2021, and the first people I wanted to talk to was the Catholic worker in Los Angeles. They run the Hippie Kitchen, so free meals on Skid Row. And when I talked to them, here I found these devout Catholics who could not get a meeting with Archbishop Gomez. And then the worst thing for me, not only that, Archbishop Gomez invited a group of border of Brazilian nuns to show up on Skid Row and start giving out free food. That's horrible. That is absolutely horrible. I found that unconscionable. And of course, Archbishop Gomez, I have asked for multiple times for interviews with him and he's declined. I get it. Why would you want to talk to somebody who's going to criticize you? So I, but I fear that's what the church is turning into is a group of arch conservatives who cannot see the forest for the trees and wonder why young people are leaving the church. I don't know anyone who goes, I think I know one person who go, who attends church regularly, like every single week. And I know hundreds of Catholics, and that does not portend well for the future of the church. And why are we not going to church? For multiple reasons, but I think a lot of it is where our church leaders get so tied into these culture war debates that they think that's the only testament of faith. Being opposed to abortion, that's the only way to be Catholic? Give me a goddamn break. Gustavo, it's been a pleasure talking to you. It really has. Thank you so much. Gracias for having me. This is great. In addition to his work for the Los Angeles Times, the Times podcast, Gustavo Herriano is also the author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, and a contributing author to the People's Guide to Orange County. Both are available wherever you buy your books. This is Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi.